Right, how you guys doing? Um, it's sundown, and I'm just I'm a magistrate producer. Thank you for 57k on this podcast, where we are hot on the trail of Trump going jail. Yeah. Anyway, shout out to KAMP Student Radio at the University of Arizona. Hey, KBYT, Pasquayoki, Travel Radio, Travel Radio, Travel Radio. On the wrist with just a show, Travel Radio, Travel Radio. Welcome back. And, uh, Check out this Kevin McCarthy sex scandal. Don't buy solar panels. Seriously. Well, I think there's she is. She is. So, folks, I'm happy Green. to let you know that the Shocker. bad times keep on rolling for the Spino, for the speaker in name only. <laughs> Kevin McCarthy continues Spino. to lose. And today of all days is terrible for him for three reasons in particular. And they all come back. To his main challenge, that he made all of these deals with the devils to get that gavel, to get the power he now has that he's dreamed of having for decades, if not longer, and it's all coming crashing down on him at record pace. And this is connected to the fact that not only are the politics failing him, but he continues to be dragged down and taken down by his connections to George Santos, who just made a move that's going to hurt. Kevin McCarthy, as well as, guys, a disgusting scandal based on a lot of discussion from right-wing sources that will ruin Kevin McCarthy's marriage in a pretty epic way. Uh Let's start the politics, however, because it's here where the most public concern is. That Kevin McCarthy, one of his arguments was, is I could build a governing coalition and rein in the crazies, and that's not happening. And as a result, he's losing everything. You might call this the Godfather meets Washington. Instead of five warring mob families, it's a group of Republican lawmakers from across their caucus's political spectrum trying to avoid a catastrophic debt default. CNN reports the talks between the so-called five families and the House Republican leadership are in their early stages. The goal? Some sort of consensus on the debt limit. What the lawmakers and the leadership hope is that they can force Democrats to back off their calls to raise the debt ceiling with no spending cuts. CNN's Eva McKen and Melanie Zanona join our conversation. So, Kevin McCarthy, not afraid of the Godfather reference, <laughs> I guess, calls the five you know, yeah. disparate groups within yeah. the Republican family the five families. And the idea is, this is hard. If you want to propose spending cuts in conjunction with the debt limit, that means you've got to put them on paper. Uh, so you're trying to get the most conservative members to agree with the more moderate members and? So the strategy here for Kevin McCarthy is really twofold. He wants to first show that Republicans can get 218 votes for any spending plan because one of the chief criticisms of Republicans has been they can't negotiate amongst themselves. They could barely elect Kevin McCarthy as speaker, let, let alone be negotiating with the White House here. So they're trying to strengthen their negotiating hand by showing, hey, we do have a plan. We can come to agreement and we can do this. And the second part of the strategy for Kevin McCarthy is he wants to have an inclusive process with these so-called five families, uh, a godfather reference there that I will say not all Republicans love that reference. Uh, But 
McCarthy wants to show that it's not just going to be leadership driven. And that's because he knows that this is going to be a make or break moment for his speakership. There is the power to oust him at any given moment. So he is trying to sort of thread the needle here amongst the various wings of his party. But it's going to be a lot easier said than done. And then if and when they come to that agreement, they still have to negotiate with the Democrats. And so let's just let's just go. You see them up up on the screen there. Yeah, Garrett Graves is a top McCarthy ally. I call him the leadership family. He's representing uh, the leadership in there. Dusty Johnson uh, is the chairman of what they call the Main Street Caucus. Patrick McHenry, the Financial Services Committee chairman. David Joyce, Republican Governors Group. Uh, Scott Perry, the Freedom Caucus. They tend to be the more conservative members. Uh, so far in this piece, Eva, uh, this is Dusty Johnson. There's a level of trust and engagement within the five families that I've not seen in the previous four years. We're working really well together. Uh, Ralph Norman of South Carolina, among those who was not going to vote for Kevin McCarthy back in the beginning, who ultimately did, we're trying to get to the framework. We all want buy-in. There's a sense in us, the group putting something out, another group puts something out. They don't want that. They don't want to have, you know, you propose this, she proposes that. The question is, you can start a conversation. Can you get to the finish line? Right. I would expect optimism from some of those key negotiators there. And ultimately, Speaker McCarthy is speaking to a concern that was voiced by Republicans, that power needed to be decentralized, that everyone should have a role in these key negotiations. But the problem for Republicans is going to be a landing on what exactly these cuts will be. This is a party that has, I think, like, like to branded themse brand themselves on austerity. But then when you get to the nitty gritty um, and actually naming the programs, we just have not seen, I think, a little political willingness to go that far. And Republicans get a lot more fiscally conservative when there's a Democratic president. Just so it notes there that Kevin McCarthy is basically trapped. Like, he can't get a deal done with the Democrats. Like, if he gets a deal done, he will lose the MAGA part, the crazy part of his caucus, who will revolt against him. And remember, they don't have that many votes to spare. He can only really lose, like, four, five, six votes, whatever it is. If a dozen or so Republicans get mad at him for passing a debt ceiling bill that's not doesn't contain enough cuts, or some of them have said, no matter what, they won't support raising the debt ceiling. And if Kevin McCarthy makes a deal, yeah, he'll be able to maybe get moderate Democrats and the Democrats on side, and I'll have enough votes to pass that, but he'll lose the speakership in the process. Yet, by going with his own party, he almost guarantees a package that is, one, never going to get past the Senate, never going to get past the President and all of that, but critically, will likely contain cuts that are deeply unpopular with the average person, and frankly, even a lot of Republican voters. There's a reason why McCarthy has been so furious that some Republicans, not all, but some Republicans have talked about cutting Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and all of that. And it's not because Kevin McCarthy believes in those programs. Ideologically, he wants the poor to suffer, and he would cut those programs to give tax cuts to his buddies in a second if he felt politically it wasn't disastrous. But that's where they're at. And this continues with Santos. There's a couple clips here from top Democrats linking the general failures of the Republican Party and McCarthy to Santos and his failure to hold him to account. And Santos ain't doing McCarthy any favors. So he just shows no remorse. The fact that he was shamelessly berating himself on the aisle during the State of the Union in a pitiful attempt to shake the president's hand tells you everything you need to know about George Santos. He has no shame. He has no remorse. He has no regret for all the lies that he's told and all the laws he's broken. You cannot redeem the irredeemable. 
What do you make of how Kevin McCarthy has handled this situation and his continued inaction, basically hiding behind the Ethics Committee, saying, you know, everything will be dealt with once the Ethics Committee deals with George Santos and concludes their investigation? Well, first, Speaker Kevin McCarthy knows full well that the House Republican majority under his leadership defunded the Office of Congressional Ethics. And the ethics system in Congress is so broken that he knows that it would languish indefinitely, uh, allowing George Santos to escape accountability. So we cannot wait indefinitely. We have to hold George Santos accountable now. But Kevin McCarthy's actions are driven more by politics rather than ethics. Kevin McCarthy needs every vote that he can get, and he needs George Santos to remain in power. And so how can Republicans claim that they're committed to cleaning the swamp when they're protecting George Santos arguably the most corrupt member of Congress from even the barest forms of accountability. Was the fact that you were blocked by Kevin McCarthy from serving on the House Intelligence Committee a factor in you deciding to run for Senate? Uh, no, I had made the decision uh, before that, uh, although I do think that Kevin McCarthy uh, gave me another powerful reason for Californians to vote for me, and that is they can make Adam Schiff Kevin McCarthy's home state senator. Um, but uh, my motivation was much deeper than, than Kevin McCarthy, uh, and it's the fact that our democracy remains deeply at risk uh, from the kind of extreme uh, MAGA Republicans that Kevin McCarthy, Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, Paul Gosart uh, and these others represent. Uh, and I think, Lawrence, you're exactly right. A big part of the problem is that the, the GOP under Donald Trump has uh, essentially forsaken the truth. Uh, George Santos, in that respect, I think is a prime example, really, uh, of the, the, the truthlessness of today's Republican Party. Uh, but to protect our democracy, I think it's also essential that we strengthen our economy. I've always felt, uh, as I know you and I have discussed, that part of the reason we have been susceptible to a demagogue is that for millions of Americans, the economy simply isn't working. They're working harder than ever. Uh, some can't keep a roof over their head. Others can't provide for their family or they see their quality of life as less than that of their parents. Uh, and it leaves them vulnerable to a demagogue who comes along and says that he alone can fix it. Um, these are the fights I've taken on in the House. Uh, I'd be proud to take them on in the Senate. Uh, and for those who want to donate or join the campaign, they can go to adamshift.com. So you can see, right, like the, both of these clips, whether it's Schiff talking about how he's been singled out or whether it's Torres talking about his motion to expel, both of them have made it clear. Santos and McCarthy are linked. You know, both of these guys are linked politically. And as Dan Goldman and so many others have noted, there's a complicity among McCarthy. So I feel like if Santos gets arrested, the Spino shouldn't be too far behind. But let's also be clear that, you know, Santos isn't doing him any favors. Part of the thing that McCarthy wanted was for Santos to just hide away and shut up and be quiet. And frankly, at this point, I know he doesn't want to lose the vote, but McCarthy probably does want Santos out of Congress, at least eventually. But Santos just tweeted the following, saying that, you know, the, the, the calls for me to be silent and go away aren't going to work. And it says here, just to be very clear, I'm not leaving, I'm not hiding, and I am not backing down. I will continue to work for NYO3 and no matter uh, no amount of Twitter trolling will stop me. I'm looking forward to getting what needs to be done, done. And so he's saying F you to McCarthy and everybody that's telling him to just go away and be quiet and that will create more scandals. And this connects guys also 
to the growing rumors, and these are growing rumors, of a sex scandal, let's be honest, between uh, McCarthy and Marjorie Taylor Greene. Now, these are rumors, but the thing about a scandal is a scandal can be a scandal even when it's just based on rumor and conjecture. It's a bigger scandal, of course, if there's proof, but, you know, all of these sources, including right-wing sources like this one, are saying, are asking the question, and are citing sources that an affair is happening. If you check social media, everyone is saying it's happening, and it explains the rational, the irrational loyalty that McCarthy has been showing Marjorie Taylor Greene. And we have to be clear that this is connected to something from a few years ago. We've talked about this before, but the reason McCarthy, some say, didn't get the speakership back in 2016, even though he was ahead of the line over Paul Ryan, at least theoretically, was scandal broke where he was allegedly sleeping with another Republican member of Congress. And when that broke, and when he was informed of that scandal... He all of a sudden withdrew his name from Speaker, and the rest is history, and he wasn't able to become Speaker at that time. And so this scandal is big, and it's also tearing apart MAGA, because you've seen many right-wingers. I don't want to play the clips because they're vile, and I don't want to give them the exposure, but all of these right-wing sources saying that McCarthy and Green are sleeping together as a way of attacking them and their perceived betrayal of like the MAGA-first, America-first really agenda. All of this is devastating for him. Whether the rumors are true or not, the fundamental fact is he's got nothing right now. His own party, he can't control them. God. He can't control the realities <laughs> that the American people hate his policies. And PJ he can't control the realities that legal trouble has oh, come for him faced too. Toe. <laughs> I was getting tired of that's, waiting uh, to see. That's I not was a lot. To I feel like but that's what you got. Just a waste of time. Forbidden knowledge and secrets of ancient history. Billy Carson, Matthew Lacroix, three years ago. What? Why is this live? Forbidden knowledge and secrets of ancient history. Let's hear something mind blowing. Yeah. NYU professor. Hey everyone, Matthew LaCroix here. I'm joined by Billy Carson for an epic mastermind discussion and presentation, Lost Civilizations, Human Origins, and Forbidden Knowledge. So today we're going to be doing something special, where Billy and I are going to be dual reading the Enuma Elish and the Emerald Tablets, so we can understand these secrets of the past. Billy, what have you been up to and how are you, my friend? Uh, first of all, thanks for having me back on. It's been a long time since we've done this. And I'm really excited about it. I was really looking forward to it. And I'm glad everything worked out <clears throat> with the weather so that we can make this connection. Um, you know, since we last uh, did a video, I've been uh, all over the world. I've probably been around the world twice now <clears throat> in the last uh, two years. Uh, it's just been amazing. Mussolini I mean, everywhere from Cambodia, Hong Kong, uh, South Korea, <laughs> Vietnam. Uh, you know, uh, I've been to Accra Tiri in Greece to go to an ancient dig site. Um, you know, I've been, I've just been about everywhere, Peru, the Nazca Lines, uh, Machu Picchu, um, the Sacred Valley, <clears throat> all into Tumbo, Saxuoma. I mean, you, I can just keep going on and on. I've been to a lot of places. And what's happened is I've really 
you know, dug into the field research kind of firsthand uh, and went and talked to a lot of homegrown archaeologists, a lot of um, uh, homegrown researchers that have grown up in the area so that I can get a little bit of information about what's really gone on in the ancient past, what they think happened. <clears throat> and it always comes to the same thing. A lot of people are always saying the people that live there, grew up there, know the traditions, always say the same thing, that these weren't built by us, they were built by the guards. And it's really amazing. I mean, you know, um, so it's just been an amazing journey, man. And I'm so happy to be able to even, um, you know, get write the book, put the book out. It's doing phenomenal. Your book is phenomenal right here, uh, The Stage of Time. I really appreciate this book, man. I just started digging into it. And it's so amazing how similar you know, our points of view are and everything in, in reference to the ancient past and ancient history and the amount of, re I respect you for the amount of research that you've done to, people don't realize what it takes to be able to put this kind of information out in Congress, and this level of quality. You really have to be a student of, of mysteries and a student Security of, of the uh, ancient committee. history. So I Go appreciate figure. it. Thank you. So really hey, Billy, it's an honor. I, I really, um, it's amazing to hear those kind words from you, especially coming from someone of, of your um, importance you know, I'm, it really is an honor. I have not had a chance to travel quite as much as Billy. I'm say I'm jealous is an understatement, I think. Um, but hopefully someday I can get there. Okay. Billy and I are going to jump in now into some slides and we're going to review some evidence in chronological order. And we're going to start by trying to understand where human civilizations came from. You know, a lot of times I meet people who they're sitting down, they're pondering outside and they're wondering, you know, where do we come from? Where do human civilizations come from? Where does knowledge, mathematics, laws, where do all, where does all that stuff come from? And they, and they honestly like asking that question because they don't know. And of course, if you go and you go through the, um, the education system we have in school, you, you're taught that human civilization is 6,000 years old or less and that everything developed in Mesopotamia, which is true, except for the age is wrong and where it came from is wrong. And what I mean by wrong, that's a, I know that's a pretty um, blunt statement, but we have evidence that tells us where it came from. So we don't have to guess anymore. So many people aren't aware of this information. I think that's one of the things that, that we're trying to correct now. And, and Billy and I doing this work is that we're trying to point out and say, hey, look, we have evidence that directly tells us where all these things came from, tells us who we really are, tells us this lost history. And we're now at the point where we're trying to put those pieces together to understand it. And so what, what I'm showing on the screen right now, this is what is known as Eridu. Now, if you wanted to try to find out, you, if you ask yourself, well, what is the evidence that tells us where any of this stuff came from? What, what is, where is it? Where does it come from? Because I, I, don't, I don't really believe this stuff. So, some of this information seems way too far-fetched. You know, it really goes against Midas, this doctrine we're told. So Midas provide us some concrete evidence. Well, that evidence comes from four places. And Billy can chime in as we're going here, and we discussed it. And I've, I've categorized four cuneiform tablets that provide concrete evidence for all of those questions that I just asked. And those four tablets are the Eridu Genesis, the Sumerian King List, the Code of Hammurabi, and the Legend of Atanya. In each of those cuneiform tablets, it specifically describes where all of those moral laws and codes and mathematics and astronomy, it tells where all that, that stuff came from. And on top of that, the Sumerians clearly state that in, in many other places as well, including cylinder seals where they show that. Okay. And so I want to just provide you a quick little quote, and Billy is going to be very familiar with this, that 
that is the opening line of the Sumerian king list, okay? And what it says is, when kingship was lowered from heaven, kingship was an Eridu. Right, Billy? Absolutely. That's huge because that gives us an idea of where the very first city was here on earth uh, and uh, where they, where these kings or these gods, quote unquote, kind of kickstarted civilization here. Uh, I really think it was like a breakaway civilization from their planet to here. And, and that's one of the that's one of these great mysteries that still remains is, you know, where if, if all this knowledge was handed down and given. First, the first question, of course, is where did it come from and who provided it right and those and those questions then lead to asking even more questions that go deeper and deeper down this rabbit hole trying to figure out where where the origins of everything come from now i wanted to i wanted to point out something is that some people have looked at the sumerian king list and they've said okay that stuff seems sounds like a fairy tale it just can't be real well the way that you can can know that something like the sumerian king list is authentic is to then compare the information that's that's discussed in it with another cuneiform tablet and I want to mention that, I've, and I've mentioned this before in other shows, Latest some of these tablets came from completely Tony different Michael's locations, podcast. sometimes That's hundreds of miles away. So to have information be, be carried over shows you that, number one, that information is probably true. And number two, it's, it's most likely come from a civilization that was connected. And so where that comes from, that, that we can find that same information, is the area of Genesis. And that is one of these cuneiform tablets that I think is largely unknown. And, and, and is discussed very little. And I have the full translations from, including the Eridu Genesis in, in the stage of time, because that's how important this is, in my opinion. So what the Eridu Genesis states, I'm just going to read the first two paragraphs, because again, I want you to notice those terms. The terms I want you to look for are, when you read the Sumerian King List, it mentions these certain cities in chronological order that were founded, okay? It says Eridu was the first city on earth. Then it says that Bad Kabira was the second city, followed by Larak, Sippar, and then finally Sharupak. Now, what's, what's important to understand about that is that Sharupak is mentioned in these tablets as being the last city in Mesopotamia before it was all destroyed and everything had to start over again, okay? So what the Eridu Genesis says is it starts by saying, when the royal scepter was coming down from heaven, the august crown and the royal throne being already down from heaven, the king regularly performed to perfection the august divine services and offices and laid the bricks of those cities in pure spots. The firstling of the cities, Eridu, she gave to the leader, Nudamud. The second, Bad Tabira, she gave to the prince and the sacred one. The third, Larak, she gave to Palisag. The fourth, Sippar, she gave to the gallant Utu. The fifth, Sharupak, she gave to Ansud. So, not only does it, it's not like it mentions one of those cities or another one of those cities. Every single one is exactly mentioned in the order that the Sumerian king list sets. Mm -hmm. Now, and I want Billy to chime in after this. What's important about that is if you add up the dates given for what they call shars, when they listed out the reigns of these kings that ruled these cities, you get a history that would go back 200,000 years ago. And I know that would throw a wrench in everything we've ever been taught, especially when you look at how we're told in school that human civilization is less than 6,000 years old. So basically, Billy, this paints an entirely different picture about our past, doesn't it? Uh, this is incredible because it shatters all religious systems literally in one second. 
And uh, this is why this information is not taught in schools, because obviously the religious systems are a multi-trillion dollar industry and they can't have people uh, just going into this ancient information and learning it and bypassing that system. But um, this is really earth-shattering information, the fact that you can discover this information on two different stone tablets. And one thing I really want to point out, not the fact that they're so far apart, but, but the fact that somebody took the time to etch these into clay with a cuneiform stylus. I don't know if anybody's ever watched it being done, but I have. Uh, at the, there's a professor, you know, at the uh, Cambridge uh, Library, clever, uh, and he does these. Because uh, it does a YouTube say, channel. You know, clay is everywhere. Just getting moist, and then you can you can write in it, and then if it's super important, you can get it. Uh, yeah. Oh. Um. We call it, uh, I want to say bisked. Uh, yeah, like fired in a kiln. Shows you how to do it. And let me tell you something. At the British Museum, there's also uh, Mr. Finkel who does it as well. Does an excellent job showing how to do the cuneiform. He writes some cuneiform into some wet clay. It's such a tedious process. So you're thinking tens of thousands of years ago, somebody's got to sit down, get the clay out, <laughs> get a stylus out, and take so many hours upon hours to create this information and then bake it and so forth so it could stand within the test of time. They didn't have time to do this for fun. This wasn't just like, I'm going to sit down and make a whole cuneiform tablet today just for the heck of it and make up some information. <laughs> they really put down important uh, information into these tablets, things they thought would be prudent for future generations to see. Exactly. And, and it's not even just that they wanted, you know, these specific stories to be known because oh, this was just an event that occurred. They were so smart that these stories that they created were written in such a way that it's like this perfect harmonic rhythm to them. And, it, and it, at the same time, while they describe both actual events that occurred in the past and this important symbolism and all these metaphors and these lessons that we can learn along the way, but they provide in a complete glimpse in this lost viewpoint into where human origins came from and where it all began in the very, in the, in the very first place. I mean, try to imagine over 50,000 years ago, Pop just try lawyers. to imagine, I mean, think of everything that human civilization has accomplished in the last 500 years. Mm -hmm. Now try to imagine more than 50,000 years ago, these civilizations that are all being handed this information and they're rising up and agriculture is blossoming all around the planet. And you're seeing this emergence of human civilization that's spreading out around the planet. And then what happens? Well, it reaches a certain, certain sophistication and then it's wiped out and destroyed. And then human civilization has to rebuild itself again. Now, when I mentioned those four tablets that are, that, that I said are crucial, I didn't read any, anything from the last two that I mentioned, but I want to bring it up. How do you know that these events occurred? Like, how do we know these, what I just mentioned, Eridu and, and Sharupak, how do we know those cities were from that far ago, right? How do we know how old they are? How do we know how to accurately create this timeline? You basically have to look at evidence from a large spectrum of, of, of um, our area to, to understand. And the mm -hmm. first thing you want to look at is you compare things like geologic evidence you get from around the world, looking at, oh my God, the landscape was disastrously scarred by these events that occurred the last ice age. And then you look at things like ice core samples and you can pinpoint when these different climatic zones occurred. And then you can take 
these ancient cuneiform stories and then match them up based on the events they describe and how old they say they are. So when the Sumerian king list and, um, and the, and the Eridu Genesis talk about these ancient cities, you, Oh shit. I accidentally closed it. Damn. Trista. Um, and the, and the Eridu Genesis talk about these ancient cities, you, people that are then going to say, well, well, how do we distinguish what's before and what's after? Here's where really paying attention to this stuff comes in that comes in important. When you look at something like the legend of Atanya, and here's yet again, another one of these incredibly important tablets that I hear almost nobody talk about. Okay. And that is remarkable because the legend of Atanya is the only tablet that talks about the events that occurred right after the flood. It specifically mentions that there was a city in Mesopotamia that was then created, the first one of all. So you could call Eridu the first city in human civilization ever, according to these records. Then the first city after everything was destroyed was called Kish. And Kish is what was known as these post-Diluvian um, civilizations, okay? And that's that means that everything we know of, when we think of um, all these things handed, re-handed down and then civilization restarting in Mesopotamia like we're told in school. That's all part of this post-Diluvian history. This is all part of this new epic that occurred with this restarting of human civilization over again. And that's mm -hmm. why these time periods are so confused, wouldn't you say, Billy? Yep, absolutely. I mean, it's so, it gets a little convoluted, so you really got to pay attention. And I'm very I'm glad you brought up the ice cores. Um, you know, there's a show by Greg Braden, the famous Greg Braden, uh, great guy. Uh, I had the pleasure of meeting him and being in some episodes with him on a few shows. He's on a show called Missing Links. Uh, it's on Gaia. But he talks about the, the, that entire first episode on season one is all about the ice core samples. Digging into the ice cores, matching it up, like you just said, to ancient history and events, global events that have happened. And you get the record stored in the ice core. You can detect when we've had global warming in the past, and then you begin to see this cycle that it happens every so many thousands of years. You begin to see the cycle of every so many thousands of years, you get an ice age. You begin to see the cycle of every so many thousands of years, you get some type of a geological disaster that happens on the planet. You can see the different oxygen levels, different atmospheric gases of the plant <laughs> life. All that information is in the ice core. So, I mean, literally, when you study these ice cores, you can now then predict the future of the planet. And to be honest with you, a lot of people are really getting worried about the global warming and everything else. We're right on track with the ice core said we were going to be exactly right now. This is not something, to be honest with you, out of the ordinary. It's actually something that's part of our cyclical, cyclical nature of this um, geological pattern on this planet. Uh, and but, but the amazing thing is those ice cores line up with these ancient tablets, which is why I talk about the fact that I really believe that the Great Sphinx and the Great Pyramid are, are probably about 36,000 years old. Because if you go back two additional processional periods to match up the the, uh, the Sphinx with the constellation of Leo, you end up around 36,000 years ago when, according to the ice cores and according to the animal tablets, it's the perfect time to build the Giza Plateau, to build the Great Pyramid. So it kind of really gives you, it helps you paint a, a, a good picture about what's going on. And the other thing is, like you said, finding these tablets all around the world, Chief Joseph, which was a Native American Indian that was unburied in North America, was unburied from a, a, a burial tomb in North America and what was in his pocket, a Sumerian tablet written in cuneiform text. So the Sumerians had contact with Native American, indigenous Native Americans 
thousands of years ago in the North Americas, proving again that they had traveled the entire globe. They, they also found in, uh, in Mesoamerica, Sumerian uh, writing, which they call Proto-Sumerian, but that's even on Wikipedia, I mean, anybody can look it up. They even had a metric system back then. So when I tell people about you know, the fact that the Grand Gallery in the Great Pyramid is the longitude, the numbers match the speed of light in five meters per second. Well, people go, oh no, we didn't have meters back then. Oh yes, we did. <laughs> they had meters thousands of years ago. Everything we have now is just a rediscovery. Exactly, that's really well said. And we're gonna be getting into some of those, some of those pieces of evidence from other parts of the world that prove that there was this global civilization and global connection that once occurred around the planet that was completely destroyed and wiped out. And Billy, you made some, some excellent points there. Is, and, and I want to address a couple of them is um, right now, yes, we're going through another one of these time periods. This cyclical nature time period, don't allow the media to distract you and, and, and confuse you over what's going on right now. Oh, this warming that's occurring on the earth, completely just human induced, nothing to worry about. We're just going to fix things up, cool things down. We're, we'll be all set, except for the fact that we're right in line with another one of these cycles that I think is based on solar cycles. Um, that occur where you get extreme warming and then and then a period of extreme cooling over mm -hmm. and over and over again. And in between each one of those events, you get a disaster. Now, yeah. how big that disaster is going to be is depends on a lot of factors, especially if you have an ice age. And that's why I don't. I want to both remind people that that's why this important is this this information is so important to learn right now because we're in this window. Where, where we have all of this available to us and we don't know how long that window is going to be. And secondly, thankfully, this is the part where I go the positive direction um, on this discussion is that we don't have an ice age right now. And that's something that a lot of people, it gets past and they say, oh my God, these events that occurred back then, they're going to be just as bad right now. Well, they, they, they sort of can't be because without that ice age and having one to two miles of ice above where I'm sitting right now <laughs> talking to you, you, you're not going to have that massive outburst of water that flooded, which is what was one of the major components, I believe, behind what they describe as being the Great Deluge. Now, mm -hmm. I do think that there is um, earthquake and, and um, volcanic activity that occurs as well. And I'm not going to um, poo-poo the idea that we're, we're not going to have challenges that are going to be coming up in our future. But we just have to understand and, and really look back at these events in history and then learn from them and try to figure out if we're going to go the same route that these ancient civilizations did and disappear, or if we're going to be able to stand the test of time and our civilization is going to continue. And so that's why we're at a crossroads right now, because we need to understand that the Maya, the Aztec, the Hopi, the Hindu, the Cherokee, and then many, many other ancient cultures around the world, they clearly state in their, in their ancient writings and between in, in their stories they say that, that human civilization today is this is either the third or the fourth epic that, that we've had in our past. That means that human civilizations have gone through these cycles of rising up and then to being destroyed over and over again. And we're at the third or fourth of those time periods. And that's pretty mind blowing to, to, to wrap your head around and consider, I think, Billy, don't you? Oh, absolutely. It tells you that we're in a grand cycle, just like the uh, the Indians talk about the native, you know, not the Native American Indians, but the Indians in the East, when they're talking about these grand cycles of the yugas and the rise and fall of civilizations. Uh, and, you know, uh, the nature of this universe is cyclical. 
and the rise and fall of civilizations is typical. And Thoth talks about this in the Emerald Tablets, where he talks about the fact that he's actually traveled to other planets to watch civilizations rise and fall. So we're not the only ones that go through this situation. According to Thoth, this happens all throughout the entire universe. Civilizations have this cyclical nature to them where they rise and fall. So we're not, you know, we're not the exception. The same thing happens here. Uh, and we're living, you brought up a very good point. We're living in a very small window uh, of opportunity here where we're able to uh, enjoy this planet, enjoy the beauty of nature, to flourish. <laughs> Okay, I forgot to tag her. Okay, young Democrats. And really, it's a shame when you see this tiny, when you can really understand how small this window is. It's, it's, it's smaller than a blink of an eye. It's quicker than a blink of an eye. Geologic time-wise, yeah. Geologically time-wise, yeah. So we're here, and we're battling each other and fighting each other, and we're pulling each other apart. We should be spending this little bit of time that we have to love each other, to have show unconditional love to your brother and your sister, to unite, to make, you know, and maybe even to find a way, if we join up, to break this cycle or maybe, uh, you know, travel the stars and do things that we have an opportunity to do while we have this window of opportunity here before the next geological disaster. And it's not a, it's not to be negative. It's just that it's just part of life. Just like you, your avatar body is born and it grows up and it lives. And when it wears out, it passes on. Uh, you know, the same thing happens, uh, you know, in, in these windows where you have uh, the uh, areas where air, the galactic space is clear of debris and planets can, can prosper and grow and develop life. And then there's times where that doesn't happen anymore for a short period of time. So we've got to be happy with what we have here. We've got to really start to love each other and enjoy the opportunity, this window of opportunity that we do have on this planet. Very well said. And that's essentially leading us into, well, how far back do we go? And, you know, if, if, if we had the cyclical nature of, of destruction over and over and over again, you know, are we going to make it to the next epic, to the next stage, like you said? Just imagine what the future of humanity could be. Thoth talks about that all the time. You know, what the potential of what we have is almost infinite. It's, it's, um, it's infinite, except that we are, are, 
uh, dramatically held back by all these things that distract us and keep us locked in this illusion of the material world. And that's why Thoth calls us. We're the children of men. We're not men. We're not yeah. mankind. We're the children of men because we're all like these little kids that refuse to accept what we who really we really are and what defines the nature of reality. We, we get so distracted by this physical body. You know, this is me. This is me. I need as much as I can before I die because I can't take it with me. Except that we're just eternal conscious energy, and you can't take anything physical with you. Right. The only thing that matters is what you do during this life. And what you leave behind in your legacy for the future, that's really all that matters. And mm -hmm. so on that note, um, we're going to get into some of these really controversial topics because we're going to go back even further. And when, when we discuss in places like the Era to Genesis and Sumerian Kinglis, when it discusses how the first city was Eridu, and then all these other cities emerged afterwards, people would scratch their head and be like, well, what else does it say, right? Is it, does it say anything else about... What, what happened before that? What about what about human civilizations? You know, I don't feel like a, an ape. You know, I, I really, I really, this, everything in this life tells me that I'm something different from an ape. Well, evidence clearly states the opposite of what we've been told in school through this Darwinian evolution aspect of where we're told that Neanderthals and Denisovians came along and started slowly developing. And then we broke away and then we had this rapid developing and then we ended up where we are. Except the problem is they don't explain at all how the human brain doubled in size in only a small time period or all of these strange things about both why we have all these genetic abnormalities and, you know, we don't have hair on our body. We, we, if we go on to nature and we try to, try to survive in this world, we will die. It's almost like if you look at it from the outside, like an observer, it's like we're not really from here. It's like we're just here as visitors and stewards here to learn and grow. Whereas what we're told is that we're just sort of this ape that got here where we are because of survival of the fittest. And because of that, we can do whatever we want. Right, Billy? Right. Yeah, that's, I totally don't agree with that. I believe that there's micro uh, changes of, you know, that, that uh, organisms are capable of, but the macro changes like what they, you know, they're describing in this evolution to go from a monkey to a human being, it would take, I mean, probably billions of years. I mean, even just uh, a 2% variance, which is the difference between us and a chimpanzee, uh, that 2% variance literally takes multi-millions of years if they were to, quote-unquote, be real uh, macroevolution. Uh, and so I really do believe, after looking at the research, after analyzing information in biology having to do with chromosome number two being fused in the human genome, uh, having the telomere caps put on the end of chromosome number two, and geneticists, mainstream geneticists have said this had to be done in a the laboratory. They said it out of their own mouths. They've written this down. This is like, you know, well-known, but they can't just say who did it, but they can tell you it seems to happen around 200,000 years ago. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Isn't that the same age we gave? If you add up all the, the dates for the reigns of these cities, you get Oh, just over 200,000 years ago, which would fall in line with the first city ever created and this whole I, this whole biblical story with Adam and Eve and the mm -hmm. creation of man, right? Absolutely. <laughs> so you, you start to take these biblical stories, right, that we think are all just myth, and then you take the, these direct evidence from these cuneiform tablets, and then you take all this genetic data, and you look at, uh, look at all of it on this holistic viewpoint, and all of a sudden you start to see that the story of what we've been told about who we are is extremely antiquated, biased, and inaccurate. And I actually go 
one step further to say that it was deliberately chosen. See, yeah. Darwin, if you look into Darwin and you look in his theories, he wrote confidently, he stated, and this is something that a lot of people don't bring up, is that mm -hmm. he expected that his theories were going to be disproved in the future. He, he mm -hmm. said that. He, he said, said that. he expected his theories to be disproved in the future because he saw holes in his logic. Mm -hmm. And he saw holes in what he was seeing around him, and he knew that. I, I, I know I really um, I hammer on Darwin pretty bad, but the, the more you look at it, the more you can actually see that Darwin didn't even, like I said, he didn't even think that his theories were going to be something that stood the test of time. But what happened is religion and other organizations grabbed onto Darwin because they said, here is something we can use. Yeah. What happens if human beings view their existence as an ape? You know what I mean, Billy? Mm -hmm. what, Absolutely. If someone perceives themselves as just an ape and that yeah. brain is created and that consciousness is created with a brain, Billy, I'm going to ask you, how would that change both what we do here and our perspective in the universe? Well, somebody uh, thought that they really came from apes and that uh, consciousness comes from the brain. It would limit you uh, because now you have a limited viewpoint of, uh, of where you came from and how you got to this point. I think that if you... Um, that really locks you into the religious system. I think that if people would understand that we were uh, seated on this planet and then a little much later genetically modified, maybe even again by these Anunnaki beings or these Atlantean beings at some point, according to the ancient texts, but understanding that consciousness is not created in the brain, that consciousness is downloaded from the source. And I think that um, that would really expand people's uh, mentality to understand that they're part of something much bigger than this simple evolutionary type of a fairy tale, but they're really part of the God, the, the God divine energy that's flowing through the entire universe. And that the same divine energy that is creating everything that we consider to be matter in the third dimension and reality in the third dimension is the same divine energy flowing through and coursing through their veins. Uh, and, um, you know, there was a study, and a scientific study done where they took people and they put them in rooms and they put them in dark rooms and they put these electrodes on their head, connected them to a computer, they want to see what people's uh, brain electronically look like on a computer after looking at specific images so they can see how the brain reacts to information and digital information and images. Well, they found out something amazing by accident. So they spaced these images 10 seconds apart. They would put up something like a serene image of a lake view or an ocean, a bed of roses, then a horrific scene like somebody getting murdered or stabbed or shot, and then a weird scene like kind of in the middle, like a building on fire and things like that. So all of a sudden what started happening is the data readout on the computer started uh, telling the computer what the next image was going to be up to seven seconds in advance. So that proves that we're getting a download of information from the future or from maybe real time, and we're not living in real time. So again, the brain doesn't create consciousness. It downloads it. Every case study they did, it worked out the same way. After a few minutes, the human brain was picking up the next image and transmitting it to the computer before the image showed up on the screen. Every case study they did. So this is how powerful we truly are. Our brain has billions of magnetite crystals. We download information directly from space-time, uh, and we bring it into our reality tunnel so that we can operate within it. Uh, but that's a whole other point of view that they don't really want us to know. They want us to keep us very locked in and, and, and focused on, you know, eight to human and 6,000 years and all this other kind of crazy stuff. But the true reality is we are much bigger and much more important than, some, than this evolutionary fairy tale that's been taught. That's right. And that's really well said, Billy. I could not agree more. Uh, what I wanted to say on in regards to that is 
Um, one of the examples I give that I talk about a lot is um, human beings right now perceive themselves as just this animal, right? Just this advanced animal. And it's like they're in this giant fenced in pen and they're all going to work and they're all doing what they're told. And they have, they live generally these very, just come home, we watch TV, we, maybe we go out for a hike every once in a while, we go out to do something, but largely our lives are very um, uneventful. And, and then before we die, that's why the regrets of most people is that they never really did anything. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, so those are, that's this form of conformity that we talk about where people, the perception of reality that's been created here is not simply just based on some scientists that created it and oh, that's what all the evidence says. So we're going to go along with that. It's actually a paradigm to control our consciousness and mm-hmm. how we perceive reality here. Because we're about to read some cuneiform tablets that completely contradict what we're told. And you're going to see how this mindset could control human civilizations. So get, getting back before we start that, getting back to, I want to bring up a point, getting back to this farm of conformity. Um, those animals that are in that farm, doing what they're doing on a daily basis, going to some dead end job and wasting all their energy and time. And then they die and they wonder what they spend all their time doing. If those animals, and I, I use that animal as, that term animal is just a, an example because we're not really animals at all, are we? But if those animals realize that they're not farm animals at all and that they're actually this incredible being that doesn't belong caged at all, it belongs, you know, doesn't belong having its wings clipped. It belongs out expanding consciousness and reaching the infinite stars and all of these things, whereas the complete opposite is happening right now. And, and when those when you discover the truth and when you read these ancient translations and tablets and when you look at all this data, it's like finding a hole in that fence and running away and never coming back ever again. But the challenge that I put to every single person here, and I bring this up in my previous book, the challenge, and it goes along with Plato's cave, that, that the idea that everyone's trapped by these illusions is that you have, when you break out of that pen and you run away and the sun is basking on you and you're free, the challenge then becomes you have to come back. You have to come back and save the rest of the animals that are in that farm or they're not going to make it out. And that collective of humanity is going to go down that road that other civilizations did. And we're going to be wiped out and we're going to disappear and become a myth just like they did because we're not learning the fundamental lessons we need to right now to mm-hmm. make changes and reach the next level of our consciousness. So, so on that note, Billy, let's go into what actually says in these tablets and discusses it. Okay. And so, and so we're going to be starting with, um, we're going to be starting with what's called the Enuma Elish, and I know it's very dear to your heart, Billy, because it's one of the ones yeah. that I know you talk about um, mo- among the most of all. And the Enuma Elish was found in the Ashurbanipal Library, as I mentioned, in 1849. Mm-hmm. And there's been many translations and different versions of it that have been brought up. And, and I want to also just mention before we bring that up that it may be amazing for some to read and understand that you'll bring you'll, you'll read one version of the Enuma Elish, then you'll read another version, like the Babylonian version, you'll notice that they're different. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to bring up is that there is a competition among these gods for who created mankind and who mm-hmm. can get credit for being their savior and their, and their fa- great father. And so yeah. if you read Babylonian versions of what we're about to read right now, you find out that it says that Mardu created mankind. Okay. Right. And we're gonna, we can get into it and talk about that as well, but it's this competition for who can be the savior and who could be the, the, the great creator of, of our species. So in the version we're going to be reading, it's a version that came out of Nineveh, and it's the version that I feel is the most accurate. 
Um, and it's, it was translated by uh, great translators like Stephanie Daly and George Smith, some of the, some of the best that have been out there. Um, and so the Enuma Elish starts by saying, in, in this, from where we're going to begin, it says, they bound him, holding him before Ea. They inflicted the penalty on him and severed his, his blood vessels. From his blood, he, Ea, created mankind, on whom he imposed the service of the gods and set the gods free. And then it says, after the wise Ea had created mankind and had imposed the service of the gods upon them, that task is beyond comprehension. The gods were then divided. All the Anunnaki into upper and lower groups. He assigned 300 in the heavens to guard the decrees of Anu and appoint them as a guard. Chapter 6. Isn't that amazing? Oh, it's amazing, yeah. I mean, it, it, it just tells you right there. And Billy, I'm sure you know that that same dis description is almost um, referenced um, exactly in the Atrahasis as well. Isn't that, isn't that just mind-boggling with all these questions yeah. that people have? It's amazing that the Atreasis epic and this have so many similar verses in them. So it tells you that it's, it's right on point. You know, it's really amazing. And uh, and the thing that I like about the, the Enuma Elish is the fact that it mentions the Anunnaki. It mentions uh, Marduk or, or the Nibiru planet, and depending on the version that you're reading. And you can find Marduk in the modern-day Bible. You can find him in the Torah. You can find these names through the American Library. So it's not even been hidden. It's there, but people have just never paid attention to it. Well, let's let's try to have people understand they might not know these names. So Ea, that's mentioned directly in this translation that we read, his name originally was known as Ea before he came here. And then he, his title was then, was then changed to Enki. Okay, now, so Enki, I'm just going to refer to him as Enki, though, because that was his later, his later name. But Enki is the one that is credited in every single ancient text, except some of these other versions that were later re re rewritten, as being the creator of mankind. And he was, he was said to be this great being that created mankind to do the workload of the gods. And actually, the phrase I like even more, if you go read the Atrahasis, which those translations are in the stage of time, is it the, the phrase that it gives in the Atrahasis is even better. It says, they created mankind specifically for the role of the, to, to do the role of the gods. But it says the phrase, to undo the chain to set them free. Undo the chain to set them free. Now, I want to tell you what I think about that, and then maybe you can mention what you think, Billy. Um, but but I, I believe that that references the chain of the physical reality of the third dimension and being mortal. I think mm -hmm. that beings used human, the human race as a way to achieve immortality and also probably to achieve a non-physical um, ex existence here where they could go into upper dimensions and basically rule over us because we exist in a, in a lower state of awareness than they do. And, and, then, and then you can chime in, but I want to also mention is that, well, who is Marduk? Because we brought that up. Marduk is credited as being the first son of, of Enki, Ea. And so this competition arose between these younger generation gods and the older generation gods who were competing here on, on, on who could rewrite everything, who could become the savior, who could become the great, the great god here. And that's what this competition has been over and over and over again. And that's why Billy and I try to fight so hard to try to get the most accurate information because it's a, it's a battle of information and it's a battle of understanding the, the truth, right, Billy? Oh, it's a big battle. I mean, uh, you know, even I just made a post on Instagram about the fact that Marduk, also known as Amun-Ra, is responsible for the defacing of a lot of these statues and these hieroglyphs around Egypt. And a lot of people got immediately offended and they're really going crazy on the comment here when they get off of this 
this show with you. I'm going to check my comments. It's going to be real hectic because people <laughs> don't want to um, uh, come to terms with the fact that this was done in deep antiquity. I've been to Egypt. I've seen the thousands upon thousands of defaced gods on the hieroglyphs. I'm talking about temples with glyphs, probably, I would say, two, three hundred thousand glyphs in one temple all chipped away. Faces of all of the uh, statues broken off. And these go way back further than Napoleon. You know, they want to say Napoleon went and shot the noses off and people didn't want people to know that they were black. That's what, no. Amin Ra, also known as Marduk, is the one who had this done because why? Because he wants to be known as the, only, the one and true only God. The same term that actually made it into modern day Bible. Uh, you know, had, these guys had big egos. I mean, big, big, big egos, man. Um, and they were battling each other consistently to be the one to do this and the one to do that. And matter of fact, if you look in the modern day Bible, look at the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, and especially when you figure out that the word God in the Bible is mistranslated with God's singular, it's supposed to be God's plural, everywhere in the entire Bible. Yeah. It was purposefully done. In the book of Deuteronomy, you have these gods who are Marduk and his cousins and his nephews and everybody else fighting each other and sending humans across to another area with people that they don't know, never met before, to battle them, to, to rob and rape and steal and everything else. These are the actual words used in the modern day Bible, rape, kill, murder, uh, and so forth, you know, and they were battling each other using humans as, as cattle, kind of like we do today. We take somebody out of school, we send them halfway around the world, put them in the military, tell them to go blow up a guy on a camel so he can get a free education. It's the mind trick <laughs> we played on the people now. So they've got these gods doing the same That's thing today brilliant. as they did in ancient times. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's really amazing how they wanted to be able to take claim for everything. And you see it passed down to the pharaohs. The pharaohs could take claim for a tomb that wasn't theirs. They would take claim for a pyramid that they didn't really build. They take claim for anything because they want to have that uh, they want to have that reputation that added to their bio. That know? legacy, right? Yeah, that legacy is crazy. It's and, and that's what it really comes down to. Um and that legacy is what is being fought over right now. That 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 battle has not ended. It's just we don't perceive it the same way because our understanding of linear time um, is is different than perhaps others. Um, yeah. We exist in a certain kind of 24-hour cycle based on this 12-hour clock. And it's really interesting to, if you look at the origins of where that came from and how that rules everything. How, because it, how we perceive time is how we perceive events and how we perceive the, um, how things go over the course of history. Um, and I want to bring up a couple of little interesting points um, as we talk about human origins is that and we really touched on that well when Billy was discussing how, you know, we download consciousness or we're like antennas for consciousness. And that we're really these beings that are here that didn't arise from just simply just an evolved state. Now, I do I do believe that human beings are a product that includes um, a primitive um, ape, but that as like a blueprint. But that doesn't mm -hmm. mean that that's our complete origins. Um, if let me give you an example. I think this is one of the best examples to really look at this, to disprove what, what has been taught. Billy brought up what's called micro versus macro. Micro means very small. Macro means larger. And so, and that's one of the things that I, I talk about in the stage of time a lot is that like Lloyd Pye says, evolution, as we've been taught, is much more likely to be on a micro scale than on a macro scale, meaning that small things do happen over time based on the environments and things that occur. But large things either take a really, really long time or they did not happen the way that we're told. And I think the same thing happened with humanity and the human race. Because if, if you look at 
how far back the human race goes and everything we've left behind in writings, everything we've left behind in observations throughout time. There's never been one mention ever of an ape that's been observed changing on a level that we can understand that would be related to evolution. Yes, there's apes that can be taught gorillas and things that can be taught how to read certain things and, and certain intelligence because they do have an intelligence that can reach a certain level and that is rather intelligent, but it's nowhere on the same scale of what human consciousness and the human brain is capable of on the, or even on this.